Okay, now into the subject matter of the course. And our first major subject is uh, the nature and value of the subject. What is economics all about and why is it worth studying? And I give you right off the, the bat a definition of economics, not by any means the only possible definition, but uh, the one I think is most helpful. Economics is the science that studies the production of wealth under a system of division of labor. Under a system of division of labor. Now, what is the division of labor? Well, it's the separation of the total labor required to support a human life into separate distinct occupations. Uh, if we had gone around and I had asked each of you uh, what kind of work you do, uh, probably there would be no two identical answers. Each person, even if you're working at the same company as some others, uh, almost certainly you have a different job description. Uh, we have an enormous number of specializations and subspecializations. And in uh, a division of labor economy, in any first world economy, all of which are division of labor economies, uh, the way people live is by uh, devoting their practically their entire working time to the production of just one thing or a very small number of things or they're uh, merely performing one simple step in helping uh, to produce just one or at most a small number of things. That's what they devote their full time to and uh, virtually everything that they produce, uh, all or almost all of it, is consumed by people other than themselves. At the same time, uh, practically everything that each of us consumes is produced by the labor of others. So if you think of the particular job that you're doing, uh, maybe you're a sales representative for a pharmaceutical firm. Okay, well then you're helping in the, in the production of uh, some medications. Uh, you're uh, making the physicians aware of them and, and the benefits. And that's what you're devoting your full working time to. But the people who are getting the benefit of these medications uh, is almost entirely or entirely other people. So if you're helping to, uh, in, in the distribution of Celebrex, uh, the odds are you yourself don't use any Celebrex and no one in your family does. But uh, many other people do and you're devoting your entire working time uh, to the satisfaction of the needs and wants of others. But by the same token, uh, all of the food you eat, the clothes you wear, the automobile you drive, the apartment or house that you live in, uh, all of this is produced by the labor of others. And this uh, represents division of labor. Now, people have not always lived this way. And even right now, uh, the majority of the world's population still does not. Uh, the uh, typical mode of, uh, of economic life uh, for most of history and even today in most of the world is uh, uh, people are devoting their labor to producing the things that they and their families consume. So uh, if you have a farmer in some third world country, uh, his labor is devoted to producing the food that his family will eat. And uh, uh, such people, uh, maybe with the help of a few neighbors, uh, construct their own uh, shelter. Uh, they may even make their own clothing. Uh, they have a very limited peripheral connection to the market. Relatively little of their labor 
is producing things that others consume, uh, relatively little of what they consume is produced uh, by the labor of others. Now this is uh, rapidly changing. Uh, not many years ago, uh, one could say that perhaps only 15 or 20 percent of the world's population lived in first world division of labor societies. But that's uh, undergoing major expansion today. Uh, large uh, segments of China are uh, becoming integrated uh, into the global division of labor, uh, important parts of India, and it very well may be that the leading development of this new century uh, will be uh, that by the end of it, uh, practically the entire population of the world uh, will be incorporated into a global division of labor. Uh, we, the uh, origin and development of division of labor society uh, in modern times uh, goes back uh, perhaps as far as the 17th century uh, in, in England, uh, its early progress was very slow. Uh, by the end of the 18th century, uh, Great Britain represented the uh, perhaps the sole uh, country uh, in which could be characterized as a division of labor society. In the 19th century, it spread to the uh, countries of Western Europe, uh, 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 the United States, Japan, and uh, uh, overseas British dominions. And then uh, in the uh, uh, latter part of the 20th century, Taiwan uh, became incorporated, Singapore, and, uh, and then more recently, uh, large parts of Thailand, uh, Malaysia, and now uh, it's uh, getting solidly into China and India. And uh, if they become incorporated, that uh, will probably represent a substantial majority of the world's population. Now, uh, why is the division of labor uh, important? Well, uh, I, I go into the subject in detail uh, in chapter four, and uh, in the syllabus I probably refer to it as uh, the main discussion coming in week three, but it's perhaps a good idea to jump into it now. Uh, organizing production uh, into a division of labor uh, is an essential requirement for a high and rising productivity of labor, a high and rising output per unit of labor. And there are a variety of reasons for this. Uh, one leading reason is that uh, to the extent that labor is divided into separate distinct occupations and sub-occupations, the amount of knowledge that enters into the production of things is correspondingly multiplied. The greater the degree of division of labor, the larger is the overall total volume of knowledge that enters into the productive process. And we can illustrate this, I think, in terms of a simple example. Uh, imagine that you could get uh, some kind of grant, either from a foundation or the Department of, uh, of Education, and you, the purpose of your grant would be to take a census of the knowledge used in production uh, in the interior, the rural interior of China or India. And let's say uh, you were supplied with a good supply of notebooks, uh, tape recorders, maybe you'd need batteries only because you might not even find electricity, and uh, assume 
Uh, you could spend time with a friendly, receptive farm family, and your assignment was to learn and record everything this family knew uh, about any aspect of production. So you'd learn uh, what crops they planted, when they planted, how they tended them, how they harvested them, what they did with them, and everything else in any way related to production. How they made their clothing, how they constructed their shelter, whatever it might be. And presumably you could fill several notebooks or uh, uh, several uh, uh, rolls of, of, uh, of uh, several uh, cassettes of tape. And But at some point you would have exhausted the knowledge of this rural family. Now the question would be, if you had the time uh, to go and interview another 10 or 100 million other such families living in the same way, how much more could you learn about what enters into production? Yes? You might learn a little bit more, but they're probably I would say it would be just about exactly the same. I mean, maybe you could learn a, a few extra uh, details. Uh, someone uh, that you might interview later uh, might be a, a more clever, uh, self-sufficient farmer. They might know a few tricks the others didn't. But I would say uh, once you interviewed one, uh, you would know uh, pretty much what all of them knew with uh, very, very little uh, difference. Now, uh, contrast that with attempting to take a census of the knowledge that enters into production in a first world country. How many people are living and working in the same way uh, in a country with extensive division of labor? Most people are uh, Doing different occupations and all kinds of different occupations and sub-occupations. For example, uh, we don't have simply generic farmers. We have uh, wheat farmers, dairy farmers, uh, cattle ranchers, uh, cotton farmers, uh, on and on. Uh, all kinds of specializations and sub-specializations. And uh, there are many uh, intermediate steps uh, we have people uh, engaged in uh, refining the seed the farmers will use, and that will likely become more important with genetically engineered seed. And then you have uh, a variety of steps further back. Uh, we have other people uh, engaged in producing a wide array of agricultural equipment and performing further steps uh, in producing the things necessary for that equipment. And we don't have uh, generic engineers we have chemical engineers, mining engineers, civil engineers, electrical engineers, and on and on and on. And each of these uh, specializations and subspecializations has a, a very extensive body of knowledge. And uh, at, at lower levels, uh, we don't just have uh, generic workers. Uh, there are significant differences between auto workers and steel workers. And with among auto workers, uh, there's wide differentiation uh, in the particular kinds of work and similarly among steel workers. Now, uh, we have as many uh, distinct bodies of knowledge uh, entering into the production of things as we have distinct specializations. Now, what do you think this implies about the overall volume of knowledge 
that enters into the production of things in a division of labor society compared to a society of self-sufficient farmers. Now, with each additional person you add to the process, you gain a wider variety of knowledge. We have an incredibly larger volume of knowledge. You see, uh, in a society of self-sufficient farmers, there's essentially one body of knowledge. That's the body of knowledge they all share. That's what enters into the productive process, a body of knowledge that uh, one farmer or one farmer plus his wife can hold. That essentially defines the volume of knowledge that goes into the production of things in a non-division of labor society. In a division of labor society, the volume of knowledge is the product uh, of the sum of the, uh, all the specialized bodies of knowledge of all the different occupations and sub-occupations. So it's enormously greater. Now, if you knew nothing else at all, I think uh, this would probably be sufficient to understand the profound differences that exist uh, between the standard of living of a first world country and a third world country. The standard of living of a third world country is essentially the reflection of the limited body of knowledge that can be held uh, by just one person or one family, or at most uh, a, a collection of villagers. Uh, in a first world country, the, body of, uh, the uh, standard of living reflects the enormously greater volume of knowledge that is built upon uh, this system of specialization. All of the specializations have their own contribution. Is there anything filling the second place? Pardon me? Is there anything filling the space that uh, the fall of the Soviet Union that the second world Okay. If, if you take the Soviet Union as representing the second world, actually, uh, it would largely be subsumable under the third world, or much of it. Uh, not all of it. Uh, there are some areas uh, like I mentioned, St. Petersburg and maybe Moscow and a few other cities, uh, they're uh, closer to the modern world. Uh, they're more or less integrated. But uh, there are vast stretches of rural areas uh, where they're, uh, they haven't made uh, much headway yet. And they're uh, closer, I would say, to the third world. Yeah. Uh, the former Soviet Union was uh, largely a third world country with some exceptions. All right, well now, uh, there are some other uh, related gains uh, in a division of labor society, uh, closely connected to this multiplication of knowledge. Uh, just think uh, that in order to produce uh, many of the products that we take for granted, their production is only possible on the foundation of a very wide uh, body of knowledge, a very wide uh, range of knowledge. Uh, so you just think, uh, if we were to ask what's required to produce something relatively simple, like this uh, ballpoint pen, uh, do you think there is any one person who knows the totality of what's required to produce such a thing? I mean, you could name in broad strokes. You could say, well, you need plastic. You need ink. Uh, you need a metal point. Okay. But uh, in order uh, to actually get all of this uh, starting from nature, uh, you have to have a knowledge of, uh, of mining the different chemicals, 
I have to have a knowledge of producing mining machinery, uh, a knowledge of uh, making plastic. Plastic comes from petrochemicals. Uh, you need to be able to uh, pr uh, extract petroleum. Uh, you need to refine it. Uh, to do that, uh, you need to make uh, petroleum refining equipment. Uh, you need a transportation system. Undoubtedly, you need electric power. Uh, you take any relatively simple product, and if you investigate what lies behind it, uh, it's like a point on a spider web of complexity. There are all sorts of things behind it, all sorts of things alongside of it. And this uh, becomes true even of products that could be produced with radically less division of labor. Again, a non-division of labor society, uh, they can grow a certain amount of rice. And uh, the way they grow it is relatively simple. But uh, if you're talking about growing rice in a division of labor society, what sorts of things do you think are involved? Biochemistry. It could be biochemistry. Uh, you'd have all kinds of agricultural equipment. You might have uh, complicated irrigation systems. Uh, certainly you'd have electric power. Uh, you'd have uh, diesel fuel or gasoline and everything behind that. Uh, you'd have uh, ocean freighters, uh, modern railroads. So even the kinds of things that can be produced with little division of labor uh, in a division of labor society are produced in a far more complicated way. Uh, uh, not that we want to make things complicated as an end in itself, but uh, because that ends up being vastly more efficient. If we're growing rice, it's much, much more efficient to be able to do it by modern methods uh, of mass uh, agriculture uh, than to do it the way it was done traditionally. But then there are all kinds of products that uh, are not possible at all except on the foundation of a broad array of knowledge. So you just think, would such a thing as a jet engine be possible uh, in a society whose volume of knowledge was limited essentially to what one individual or one family could hold? Not at all. Uh, in a division of labor society, we routinely can have products uh, whose existence would otherwise be altogether impossible because so much knowledge is required directly or indirectly in their production, far more knowledge than any one person, family, or village could possibly hold. So we're able routinely to produce things that require immense amounts of knowledge. And uh, similar to this is uh, uh, the uh, wide variety of materials that's required uh, for most products. Uh, in order to produce uh, anything as complex as a jet engine or not even that much, uh, a television set, uh, a radio, uh, practically anything, uh, you need uh, today a fairly uh, extensive variety of materials. And uh, as I'm sure you all know, uh, materials are not found in a uniform mixture across the face of the earth. Uh, certain things are found in great concentrations in some locations. Uh, we have a high concentration of iron ore in uh, the Mesabi Range in Minnesota, another one in Labrador, I think another one uh, perhaps in Venezuela, uh, a few more places. Uh, petroleum uh, is found uh, in concentrations in certain areas, not at all in other areas. And uh, in order to uh, produce the kinds of things that uh, we take for granted, you need access uh, to a pretty wide variety of uh, nature-given raw materials. Well, uh, only 
uh, a division of labor society makes this possible. Uh, in a division of labor, each area uh, concentrates to some important degree on exploiting uh, its particular mineral advantages and its particular uh, climate advantages for growing different crops. So uh, we have uh, the people up in Minnesota uh, in the iron mining region. Uh, they produce vastly more iron ore uh, than they themselves require. Uh, other people in uh, coal mining areas produce vastly more coal than they require. And similarly, uh, Juan Valdez and his friends are producing vastly more uh, coffee than they require, and on and on and on. And the result is uh, that each area, uh, by virtue of division of labor and trade, is able to gain the advantages of all of the different uh, raw materials and different growing conditions uh, found across the world. And this, too, uh, is necessary for uh, uh, many, many products of, uh, of any degree of complexity. We could not produce uh, many, many of the things, perhaps most of the things, we now take for granted without uh, both the uh, geographical aspect of the division of labor and uh, the multiplication of knowledge. So uh, these are enormously important matters. And then finally, uh, uh, serving to uh, continually improve the process is the fact that in a division of labor society, a large proportion of the most intelligent and ambitious members of such a society uh, devote their working time, their concentration, uh, on the acquisition and application of new knowledge. Uh, this is uh, what, what scientists are doing and inventors and uh, important parts of business firms, uh, the research and development departments of business firms. And uh, wider than that, uh, a major aspect of the activity of businessmen is to search out and even uh, instigate uh, the development of new products and methods of production, which represents enlargement of the body of knowledge that's used uh, in making things. So now uh, we not only have this uh, vast multiplication of knowledge corresponding to all the different uh, specializations and subspecializations, uh, the advantages of geographical specialization, but at the same time, from generation to generation, uh, the level of knowledge uh, tends to improve because a significant proportion of the most intelligent and ambitious members of the society are devoting their efforts uh, to acquiring and applying new knowledge. And then the process of economic competition uh, compels everybody uh, to meet the standard of the uh, new and better products. So uh, if uh, you're producing something and now your competitor uh, comes out with some improvement, uh, you'll uh, almost certainly have to adopt something comparable or you'll be driven out of business. So uh, the advances uh, instituted anywhere, uh, if they in fact are advances, uh, will tend to be generalized. And the uh, degree of knowledge and the, the level of production uh, tends to rise uh, on this basis from generation to generation. This is George Reisman in 2020. I want to add that just as the division of labor makes it possible for people to concentrate 
on the discovery and application of new knowledge. So too, it also enables people with special talents in any area, uh, such as uh, uh, the arts, uh, uh, being an opera singer, uh, being a, an outstanding athlete. It makes it possible for people uh, with all special rare talents to concentrate full-time on uh, exploiting those talents. And the result is that uh, the society as a whole uh, benefits from being able to enjoy the exploits of these people. So if uh, we had had a, a, a primitive non-division of labor society, uh, great talents uh, such as Pavarotti, outstanding uh, baseball players and basketball players and so forth, uh, they'd be growing their own turnips instead of uh, doing what they're doing. So it's important to keep that in mind also. And I would say the division of labor uh, underlies the use of machinery. Machines are fairly complicated products. Uh, they require a wide foundation of knowledge of different sorts. Uh, they require a wide variety of materials. Uh, if we didn't have uh, a division of labor, it's doubtful we could have any kinds of machinery. And uh, you could understand why the Industrial Revolution began in Great Britain in the 18th century. Uh, Britain met uh, two essential requirements uh, for the development of machinery. They had the uh, highest degree of division of labor of any country in the world at the time, and they were the world's leading commercial nation. Uh, they had available to them whatever materials could be found uh, anywhere in the world at the time. So uh, they were able to assemble the variety of materials and the sufficient variety of bodies of knowledge uh, to make uh, the production of the first machines a possibility. So uh, the division of labor is really a, a very, very major issue. And as I say, it's the essential requirement for a high and rising uh, productivity of labor, a high and rising output per unit of labor. Now, uh, finally, uh, you know, you hear a lot about the, the word globalization. Globalization. Uh, globalization can be understood as representing uh, the ultimate extension of the division of labor uh, throughout the world. If, if and when the entire world uh, is incorporated into the division of labor, uh, then the division of labor will have been carried to its greatest possible extent. Globalization is simply a continuation uh, of what we've had uh, for the last two centuries or so. Instead of people producing uh, for themselves on their own farms, uh, they're producing uh, for others at greater and greater distances to a greater and greater extent, and they're being supplied more and more heavily by others uh, over greater and greater areas. Well, uh, the ultimate culmination of this is uh, the entire world participating in the division of labor. And uh, you could see some uh, major advantages uh, in that, uh, just on the basis of uh, economies of scale, particularly of an intellectual nature. Uh, and I'll jump ahead and give you a, an example I normally uh, say for a much later lecture. Um, just consider uh, the, the number of doctors that we can have is uh, 
limited by the surrounding population. Uh, in order to keep a doctor uh, tolerably fully occupied, he has to have enough uh, people around uh, who will break their arm often enough or need an, an appendix removed or God knows what uh, in order to keep him fairly busy. If we had a society of five people, it's very doubtful that anyone could specialize as a doctor. You couldn't, you couldn't work full time that way. Well, uh, imagine that in order to keep someone uh, tolerably fully employed as a physician, uh, you need a thousand people. So you'd have one doctor, I don't know what the actual number is, but let's say uh, every thousand people require the presence of one physician. Now, uh, if we want to have a medical school, uh, this requires that we have a substantially larger population. Imagine that uh, a, an efficient-sized medical school uh, will turn out 100 graduates a year. Again, I don't know the actual number, but it's something, and we're, we're interested in establishing the pattern. All right, suppose the average physician will practice for 40 years after graduation. Well, if an efficient-sized medical school turns out 100 graduates a year, and on average they practice 40 years, that means that ultimately we'd have 4,000 physicians. Well, what kind of uh, size of population would we need to keep these uh, 4,000 physicians uh, tolerably well occupied if each one needs 1,000 people? We need four million people. Okay, but now suppose uh, out of any out of a thousand out of uh, out of uh, uh, four thousand physicians or out of any one thousand physicians, suppose that only one is a brain specialist. Well, now if we had only four million people in our society with one medical school, uh, ultimately generating four thousand doctors, we'd have only four brain specialists. What would be the advantage of a society not of 4 million people but of 400 million people with respect to the number of brain specialists? Well, instead of four brain specialists, we can now have 400. Now how about a society of 4 billion people? Well, now we could have 4,000 brain specialists. What, what advantage do you think there would be in 400 uh, brain specialists versus four or better still, 4,000 versus 400. What do you think the advantage would be in terms of the likelihood of discovering uh, new remedies for brain diseases? Doesn't it tend to increase the larger the absolute number of highly intelligent, motivated people we have dealing with the problems? And as you get up to, you see, four brain specialists, they can have a journal of brain diseases 400 might, uh, 4,000 might be able to support uh, several such journals, and they can have a convention in Hawaii also. But now, uh, doesn't this same principle apply uh, to all uh, areas concerned with the acquisition and application of knowledge? Wouldn't it apply to all branches of engineering as well as, as medicine, uh, all branches of science? So you just think, what happens to the likelihood of the discovery and application of new knowledge, the larger the absolute number of people in on the project? Doesn't it increase? I, I would say that uh, a major explanation of the uh, progress of the last decades, uh, despite many, many negative developments working in the opposite direction, 
the fact that we've been able to advance in so many areas of knowledge and technology, uh, I think, is uh, very, very heavily due uh, to the expansion of the of the division of labor. Uh, just the fact that we have substantially larger absolute numbers of highly intelligent, motivated people uh, working on uh, these different problems. And the success that comes anywhere uh, can quickly be communicated everywhere. Well, uh, if we have uh, a global uh, division of labor, uh, I don't know what the world population is right now, I think the estimates are about six billion. Well, if we had all six billion people in the world integrated into the division of labor, uh, that would mean that uh, all of the branches concerned with the acquisition and application of new knowledge uh, would be carried on on a larger absolute scale with a greater likelihood of success. We'd have an acceleration in the uh, rate of, uh, of, economic, of technological and economic progress. So uh, this, I think, uh, is uh, an immensely uh, positive development. Uh, but uh, it's not something that uh, occurs inevitably. Uh, it's not something that uh, must result. Uh, the, there are factors that can stop the division of labor, that can uh, uh, turn it uh, in, a, in the opposite direction. Can anyone think of uh, any sorts of developments uh, that can work against the division of labor? By me? In what way? Uh, pre preventing its uh, further extension and uh, causing it uh, to be reduced. By me? Excuse me? Well, uh, at one level that could happen, but can anyone think of anything more dramatic? Well, if the conflict were just ideological, if there are people who simply disagree with each other, uh, but they're not manning the barricades, uh, I don't think that would do it. Yeah. War? War. War is something that uh, uh, can uh, really wreck the division of labor. Well, it would depend on what you meant by isolationism, but let's think of war for a moment. Uh, uh, war uh, in uh, the conditions of a modern country has often been compared to the baker fighting the tailor. Now, if the baker and the tailor are in combat with one another, uh, how does the baker get his clothing? How does the tailor get his bread? They can't uh, rely on it. Now, uh, Imagine uh, that we were to have a, a major war uh, in modern conditions. What would happen to us uh, if we, we currently import, I think, on the order of half of our petroleum? And uh, there's large quantities of all sorts of other things that we import. Everything is uh, extremely uh, intertwined uh, with foreign trade today. What would happen if uh, we could no longer count on importing substantial quantities of things from outside the United States. What would be the effect of that on uh, our standard of living? It would affect our productivity no longer be able to utilize those resources. In we couldn't utilize them. Uh, now, th there'd be a, a dramatic decline. Now, it's very possible uh, if the United States and North America uh, 
itself remained uh, free of warfare, uh, but was just cut off from foreign supplies. Uh, possibly there would be a terrible initial shock, and then uh, it might be uh, that uh, we could expand the production of many of the things that we had imported, expand them domestically, and at the same time uh, cut back on the production of many of the things that we had exported. Uh, that would be a, a significant retrogression in the division of labor, but maybe if you're talking about uh, the whole of North America or the whole of the Western Hemisphere, uh, maybe you could that would still a broad enough uh, area, a big enough area, uh, to maintain a, a modern standard of living, but not at as high a level as if we had uh, a global economy. But uh, suppose uh, the the chaos and the warfare uh, were greater than that. Suppose you wouldn't have uh, a peaceful North America. Uh, suppose we had a conflict uh, within North America. Suppose uh, the different states were warring with one another, or the different counties. Now, can anyone think of a historical uh, situation that, in principle, resembles such a thing? Well, the, the Civil War, uh, that was a major conflict uh, between two uh, parts of the United States, that's true. But uh, there wasn't that much uh, integration of the economy of the South with the North. Uh, the food consumed in the North was grown in Northern states. Uh, the South's uh, international trade, uh, they were exporting large quantities of cotton and, and other crops uh, to Britain and Europe, and they were importing uh, uh, manufactured goods from Britain. Uh, the worst effect economically of the Civil War, uh, other than the destruction going on in the South, uh, was the uh, cotton textile industry in Britain uh, was, was wrecked for a number of years. But I think uh, there are more dramatic examples. Uh, we have a, a period of centuries uh, of self-sufficient production uh, and a miserably low standard of living accompanying it, uh, following a period of centuries of relatively great division of labor. Does anyone know? Uh, the Dark Ages. Pardon me? The Dark Ages. The Dark Ages followed what? Barbarian invasion. Which? The Mongol hordes. Well, the Mongol hordes were part of it later on. All of Rome. Yeah, there was the Roman Empire. Uh, the early Roman Empire uh, represented the greatest degree of division of labor uh, in all of history until perhaps as late as the 16th century. They achieved, uh, back in the second century AD, uh, a very considerable division of labor uh, that ranged from uh, Britain in the uh, northwest uh, all the way down uh, to uh, the Arabian Peninsula uh, in, the, in the southeast. Uh, the Roman Empire ringed the whole Mediterranean, uh, all of Western Europe, uh, portions of Germany, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, all of North Africa, Egypt, uh, Palestine, Turkey. And uh, there was extensive trade, uh, tin mined in Britain, uh, showed up uh, in Syria. Vases produced in Syria uh, could be found in France. And they also had extensive trade uh, beyond the uh, borders of the empire. Well, this uh, was followed 
by centuries of feudalism, whose leading economic characteristic was uh, the self-sufficiency of very narrow territories. Each little feudal domain uh, attempted to produce within its own territory virtually everything consumed in that territory. Uh, so you'd have each little territory, uh, maybe with a 10 or 15 mile radius, uh, they would attempt to produce everything uh, that they required uh, for consumption there. Now what brought that about? Well, uh, prolonged warfare. See, if you have war going on continually, uh, can you count on outside supplies? So if you can't count on any outside supplies, what do you have to do to get supplies? You have to produce them yourself. Well, uh, it was the uh, it, it started with uh, civil war uh, within uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, they had a century of civil war, the third century. That was also a century of inflation. Uh, they started with gold and silver coins. Uh, the Roman government kept expanding the uh, quantity of money by collecting gold and silver coins and taxes, melting them down, adulterating them with lead and copper. Uh, so they kept expanding the quantity of money uh, to meet an insatiable desire uh, to, for the government to spend. Prices rose astronomically. Uh, they imposed wage and price controls. Uh, that deprived uh, many key industries of profitability. Uh, uh, that uh, by itself uh, undercut the division of labor. Uh, ultimately, they repudiated their own currency. Uh, they refused to accept uh, their own coinage in payment of taxes. And that's when uh, payment of taxes in sheep and goats uh, got started. Uh, they could no longer pay uh, the Roman legions in money. And so they relied on uh, farmer militia who were no match for the barbarians. Then you had the barbarian invasions. And then uh, you had uh, local warfare among the feudal lords for centuries. And so there was hardly any division of labor for centuries. Yeah, sorry to keep you off. Well, no, I was just curious. Rome, for its most part, was at a constant state of war. So how did it control? If, if the argument goes, obviously, it's a different circumstance because they were the conquerors and had more of a, if they were an infrastructure executing it. No, you see, they may have been uh, in one war or another at one place or another, but uh, the uh, first two centuries of, uh, of the uh, modern era, the, fir uh, the first and second centuries AD, I think are often uh, described with the words Pax Romana, the Ro Roman peace. See, uh, Rome uh, overcame all of the rivals, and uh, there were basically peaceful conditions, not 100%, but uh, in most places for the better part of 200 years. And so that permitted uh, relatively great economic development. And then when that ended, uh, things fell apart. I have a somewhat related second question. Yeah. Was that tradition passed down because the Ottomans took an extremely, from what I understand, an extremely efficient approach to division of labor too, did they not? I am not aware of that. Uh, the, uh, for some reason, the uh, division of labor survived better. Uh, conditions uh, were better in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. The, uh, the Byzantine uh, portion uh, carried on till I think, 1453. But uh, they were constantly uh, plundered and looted, too. So uh, I don't think they survived at their previous level. 
but certainly uh, in the Western Roman Empire, France, Italy, uh, Germany, west of the Rhine, Spain, Portugal, Belgium, uh, Britain, uh, they were set back to the state of feudalism for centuries. So uh, warfare uh, will destroy it. Uh, things that lead to warfare, like I mentioned, uh, the third century was a century of inflation and civil war. There was civil war before uh, the, the Romans were overcome. Uh, in our uh, terms today, uh, I think terrorism uh, is a factor that works against the division of labor. Uh, just think what the effects would be if uh, terrorists uh, could take out uh, some substantial, some su significant bridges and tunnels. How disruptive that would be. And uh, there, there are other things that can happen uh, if we have, uh, if we got into a state of chronic shortages. Anything, anything that creates a situation in which you cannot count on being supplied by others. That there's something you need and want, must have, but you can't get it in the market. What happens if there's something you just can't find in the market? What do you have to do if you want to obtain it? Well, you see, if you're free to pay the high price, you'll be able to get it. If you can't find it in the market, then you have to produce it yourself. Uh, anything that works in the direction of stopping people from obtaining things in the market, uh, that uh, drives them toward uh, self-sufficiency. Now we have a few small things of this kind uh, that go on now. Uh, to the extent that people become concerned that they won't be able to get electric power from the power companies because there'll be brownouts and blackouts. Well, uh, what do some people attempt to do uh, to cope with that? Have their own generators, uh, put in solar panels, whatever, to have their own source of power. Uh, there are hospitals with their own generating systems. Uh, there are some business firms with their own generating systems. Now, so far, this hasn't gone very, very far. But uh, suppose uh, we got to the point where you just couldn't count on getting electric power from the power company. Well, that would require that if people want power, they have to produce it themselves. That would be a step uh, going away from division of labor. That would be substantially less efficient. It wouldn't be enough to destroy the system, but it's uh, a step in the wrong direction. Here, a student raises a question about the possibility of turning to substitutes when something becomes unavailable in the market. Well, people. Well, people do attempt to make substitutions, and sometimes, if there's a limited uh, interference, a limited problem, uh, they can find substitutions, and then they proceed, and there's not much effect. But uh, suppose all the different avenues are cut off. Uh, like uh, we can't get uh, petroleum, so we turn to natural gas. And then what if we can't get the natural gas? 
Well, uh, then you might say, okay, how about atomic power? But suppose that's blocked. Uh, it, it might be that you have limited blockages that you can work around, and then uh, there's merely a, te merely a temporary setback, or it could be uh, there's no way around, and then uh, you're stuck. Now, anything that uh, creates shortages, uh, a shortage uh, is a situation in which there are people able, willing, and very often eager to pay uh, the announced price. But despite that, they can't find the item in the market. And that's a situation where uh, the thing is just unavailable in the market. And so anytime there is a shortage, if it persists, that's a situation in which people uh, will be driven to produce something themselves. And as we'll see uh, in a few weeks, uh, shortages can easily be brought into being. And uh, what brings them into being is uh, a combination of inflation and price controls. See, inflation uh, tends to drive up the prices of things that disturbs many, many people, that hurts many, many people. And uh, a popular response uh, to rising prices is to prohibit the rise, impose a price control. But when you do that, uh, the result is a shortage. You see, uh, as we have more and more money and people attempt to spend more, well, uh, that's driving up the price. If you don't allow the price to go up, uh, you're not doing anything to curtail the quantity demanded. You're giving people more and more money. Uh, they're attempting to buy more and more. But if there isn't that much more, if they're attempting to buy more than there is, well, in a free market, the price would rise. As the price rose, what happens to the amount people attempt to buy? That goes down. In a free market, a rise in price uh, always operates uh, to keep the quantity that people are attempting to buy commensurate with the quantity available. But if you have a frozen price, the quantity people attempt to buy can easily surpass the quantity available, and then you have a shortage. And that means a situation where people can't find what they want in the market. And if this is something that becomes persistent, then they have to attempt to produce it themselves. So uh, price controls create shortages. Uh, shortages, if persistent, uh, work uh, to uh, make people attempt to be self-sufficient. All right, well, uh, all of this uh, connects with the uh, wider subject, the need uh, for economics, its leading applications. As I've indicated with the discussion of Rome and what followed it, uh, the division of labor doesn't exist or function automatically. It doesn't exist or function automatically. And the leading illustrations in history are the uh, fall of the uh, Roman Empire and its replacement with feudalism, a relatively high degree of division of labor, followed by uh, self-sufficiency for centuries, and then later on, the reestablishment of the division of labor with the modern world. Uh, you can think of uh, economic history uh, from perhaps uh, the 14th century on, or maybe even a little bit before that. Uh, you can think of the uh, broad sweep of uh, economic history 
subsequent to the Dark Ages as uh, more or less uh, coextensive with a uh, rise in the division of labor. And uh, this started very, very slowly and gradually and greatly intensified in the 18th and then the 19th and then finally the 20th centuries and still going on today. Now, if you know uh, what is it, what are the things that are required to have a successfully functioning and growing division of labor, what are the things that will wreck it, uh, that gives major insight, I think, into understanding the broad sweep of economic history. You can understand the collapse of the Roman Empire uh, by understanding what sorts of things wreck the division of labor and how are they present uh, in the uh, uh, period of the decline of the Roman Empire. And you can see a combination of civil war and war, and the civil wars uh, brought on in large measure uh, by uh, other economic policies, uh, inflation and price controls uh, serving to uh, greatly reduce the productive capacity of the Roman economy, weaken it militarily. And uh, then you can understand the uh, rise of the modern world in terms of developments uh, that are favorable to the division of labor. Uh, one leading to such development being uh, the pacification of the countryside uh, in Europe. Uh, there came a point where the uh, chronic warfare of the feudal period stopped, uh, where the uh, kings uh, attained uh, military supremacy over the feudal nobility, and the uh, feudal nobility ended up disbanding uh, their private armies. And then you had relative peace within the countryside of the European countries. Uh, goods could move from one part of the country to another freely. Uh, people uh, could start uh, depending on outside supplies getting in. Uh, they could start producing for the outside to get a revival of the division of labor. Now, the Magna Carta uh, was a, a limitation on the powers of, uh, of King John, uh, respecting uh, certain powers of the, uh, of the nobility, uh, but uh, the nobility uh, was no longer engaging in uh, private warfare. Uh, you see what happened? Uh, uh, one of the things that Adam Smith points out, he has a lot of historical commentaries in The Wealth of Nations, uh, there was a period in the heyday of feudalism, uh, the main interest of the feudal aristocrats was how can they maintain their knights in the greatest state of military readiness. That's uh, all that they were concerned with. But then somewhere along the way, uh, the aristocrats developed a taste for luxuries. And they didn't want to have to devote all of their revenues to supporting men-at-arms. They wanted to free that up so that they could have a, a fancier castle or furnish it better. Uh, have better clothing, uh, a nicer carriage, whatever. And then uh, they became interested in measures that would uh, eliminate their need to support men-at-arms so they could free up their revenue in indulging their taste for luxuries. And this played a role in uh, putting an end to continual private warfare. And that allowed uh, some greater economic development. Now, uh, as we'll see at one point in the term, uh, a vital foundation 
of a division of labor society is respect for private property rights. And uh, this was a development uh, that took hold uh, more in Great Britain than anywhere else and in, in the countries uh, that uh, Britain founded. And a rule of law, uh, these are developments required for the growth of the division of labor and, and they occurred uh, above all in Britain. All right, well, uh, if we think of economics as the science which studies uh, the production of wealth under the division of labor, and we recognize the division of labor has uh, definite requirements for its existence and successful functioning, that there are other things that will uh, wreck and even destroy it, uh, then, uh, and, and we recognize what depends on the division of labor, uh, the multiplication of knowledge, uh, the whole productivity of labor, uh, products that would otherwise be impossible, machinery, uh, then I think we're in a position to appreciate economics as actually having its finger on uh, the requirements of, uh, of, of, the, of the standard of living and even of human survival. Just think, what would be the consequences if uh, the division of labor were uh, substantially wiped out in the modern world? Just think, uh, what are the present population of the United States is close to 300 million people. Yes. How many of us would be able to live if we were attempting to live as uh, self-sufficient farmers? If you divide the, if you convert the land area of the United States, the uh, uh, lower 48 states has approximately 3 million square miles. There's 640 acres in a square mile. If you multiply 3 million times 640, and divide by 300 million, I think it works out to something like nine acres a person. And much of that is uh, desert and mountains, uh, so it's much less per person. How many of us could survive as self-sufficient farmers? Only a small fraction of the number presently alive. And uh, what would be the standard of living of those who did survive? Uh, miserably, miserable poverty at the level of the worst areas of the third world. And then if you look at places like Japan, where they have a greater population density over Western Europe, uh, what would happen uh, to the population of, of the modern world if we lost the division of labor? It would be radically reduced. You know, the population of the world uh, was more or less constant at about one billion people up to the 18th century. And now uh, it's gotten to, uh, I think, close to six billion. Well, uh, what do you think has underlied, or un what has uh, uh, un underlaid uh, this uh, tremendous increase in numbers? Division of labor? I would say the division of labor and the tremendous rise in the productivity of labor that it's made possible. Uh, Vastly more people are able to survive on a vastly higher level thanks to the tremendous increase in what the average unit of labor can produce. And it's had uh, tremendous benefits uh, uh, for the pop size of population in the third world countries also. Because just think, uh, if there is uh, the danger of uh, famine in a third world country, uh, what again and again bails them out? food supplies uh, from the first world. Uh, what is it uh, that prevents 
uh, outbreaks, uh, you, know, you know, prior to the uh, 18th century, uh, there were recurrent uh, not only famines, but also plagues. And the uh, tremendous uh, devastation of a plague was the result largely of things like widespread malnutrition, uh, generally poor sanitation, uh, poor water supplies. Well, uh, how does the division of labor and the tremendous improvements in productivity that it makes possible, how does that uh, relate to uh, the elimination of, of dread factors like famines and plagues worldwide? Well, it's obviously been responsible uh, for radically reducing these things. Uh, there hasn't been a famine in any Western country uh, since the Irish potato famine in 1848, and that was uh, an aberration. Uh, there had been uh, no famine in any uh, Western country uh, for several generations prior to that. And uh, the biggest plague that we've had uh, in the Western world, I'd hesitate to even call it a plague, I think uh, the worst outbreak of death uh, from any kind of illness was uh, the influenza epidemic following World War I. But uh, in the Dark Ages, uh, in, uh, or even a little bit past that, uh, the Black Death in Europe wiped out a third of the population in the space of three years, and, and such things were repeated. Well, you know, people uh, complain about the size of the population, but uh, I think all of us who are alive, or almost all of us, are very glad to be that way. And what makes it possible for most of us to be alive and to have the uh, tremendous prosperity that we do is the fact that we live uh, in a division of labor society. And now, uh, economics, as the science that studies the division of labor, uh, is in a position to explain uh, what sorts of things uh, will promote it, what sorts of things will destroy it. And uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that uh, what depends on uh, an understanding of economics in the last analysis uh, can be uh, the, the literal survival of material civilization. Now, why? Well, as I've said, the division of labor doesn't exist or function automatically. Uh, it depends on human choices. Uh, people make decisions that affect the division of labor, not as isolated individuals particularly, but uh, in their political capacity. If you have a country with a government uh, that is enacting policies, uh, a government is in a position to do something that uh, may be conducive to the division of labor or harmful to it. And if you have uh, governments uh, acting on wrong ideas, uh, they're capable of uh, committing serious devastation. And uh, if the citizens have beliefs and those beliefs are destructive, and they lead the government to adopt destructive policies, well, uh, that is the threat to the division of labor. And uh, the analogy I use, uh, people who are today alive in a modern division of labor society, enjoying all of its benefits, uh, in effect, uh, they're wandering uh, uh, among the, in, in the equipment, among the equipment of a modern factory. But if they don't understand its uh, maintenance or safety requirements, and they're randomly pushing buttons and pulling levers, which is, in effect, what is done 
uh, when people uh, vote for politicians who will impose this or that policy without knowing what they're doing, uh, then you have the, pot the potential for uh, major destruction. Uh, the only way that uh, a modern society can be preserved in the last analysis is on the foundation of a serious widespread knowledge of economics. Okay, well I see uh, on my watch we've gotten to about uh, 20 to 8 and I said we'd take our break at that time. So why don't we do that and you think of any questions you may have, comments, objections, whatever, and then we'll pick up at 5 after 8, 25 minutes from now. See you then. Uh, because of limitations of time, I want to jump ahead uh, to this next main heading, uh, the theme of the course. And uh, regrettably, I, I think that there will be uh, some students who will uh, take great exception, maybe offense uh, at, at the theme. And that is that uh, the division of labor uh, and its benefits depends on the institutions of capitalism. That in order to have a division of labor society, a first world economy, uh, you actually do require a capitalist economic system that will not uh, occur under socialism. And let me proceed immediately uh, to explain uh, what I mean by capitalism and uh, the way I put it right here is a political economic system based on private ownership of the means of production. That's pretty generally recognized that that's an essential uh, feature, defining feature of capitalism. But also I add, uh, and characterized by the pursuit of material self-interest under freedom. That's a significant elaboration. Now, uh, the pursuit of material self-interest uh, I don't think it requires immediate elaboration, but the word freedom does. And so let me tell you that what I mean by freedom is the absence of the initiation of physical force. Uh, when someone is free, what he is free of or free from specifically is the initiation of physical force by other people, in particular and above all by his country's government. Uh, if you live in a free country, you're free of, free from uh, the initiation of physical force by the country's government. That's uh, what it means to be free, uh, to be free from uh, aggression by the government. Now, uh, what do I mean uh, by physical force and its initiation? Physical force means physically doing something to or with the person or the property of another against his will. So uh, pointing a gun at someone, uh, shooting him, killing him, locking him up, tying him up, taking away his property, uh, all of these things uh, against his will, uh, that is the use of physical force. And uh, the concept also includes fraud. If I show up at your front door uh, saying I'm here uh, to take your television set uh, to repair it, uh, but I'm really there to take it to sell it. Uh, my taking it to sell is taking your set against your will. I'm stealing the set. Uh, fraud is a subcategory of the forcible taking of another's property. It's taking his property against his actual informed will. 
The initiation of force uh, simply means starting the use of force. Uh, the simplest distinction is a bank robber comes in, pulls the gun on the teller, he's initiating the force. The bank guard who then pulls his gun uh, to stop the robber, he is using force in defense or retaliation. Uh, uh, freedom is violated by the initiation of physical force. It's upheld by the use of force in defense or retaliation. Now, um, I uh, referred in point C to freedom and the necessity of limited government. Uh, a government uh, represents uh, the organized use of force uh, basically in defense and retaliation. The uh, fundamental necessity of a government is to have uh, an organized uh, defense against the initiation of physical force uh, subject to objective controls. Uh, governments, uh, all governments uh, prohibit such acts as murder, assault, robbery, uh, theft. Uh, the, the primary function of government is uh, to protect the citizens against the initiation of force by other citizens. And it does so in making such acts illegal. So uh, to the extent you have a government that prohibits things like murder and is effective in uh, catching murderers and deterring them, well, such a government is securing your freedom from murder. Uh, if you had a government uh, doing its job, uh, the government... Uh, uh, responding to initiations of force, using its force in defense and retaliation, uh, to the extent the government succeeded, we would be free uh, from the threat of uh, private initiation of force. The government would secure our freedom vis-a-vis uh, -vis other private citizens. But uh, how does the government uh, do this? How does the government combat uh, common criminals? It itself uses force. Uh, if you notice, the police are armed. Uh, even uh, in Britain, when they were not carrying sidearms, uh, uh, they still had billy clubs. And if they needed sidearms, they could easily obtain them. Uh, just think, what is it that uh, makes people obey any law? The fear of punishment. The fear of punishment. And what does that rest on? It's force. It's force. Uh, anytime the government imposes a law or a ruling, edict, decree, whatever, uh, it's not an advisory opinion. It's saying, uh, you damn well better comply with this or else. What's the or else? There'll be some armed officer coming uh, to haul you away or impose a fine. And if you were to resist, uh, what then happens? And then there's greater force. Then they summon a SWAT team. Uh, ultimately, uh, you are compelled to obey the law, uh, really, uh, in the last analysis, uh, by the threat of being killed if you don't. So uh, all uh, laws, everything the government does, uh, rests on the threat of force. Now, that's uh, actually necessary and desirable uh, insofar as what the government is prohibiting is uh, itself initiations of force. 
to the extent the government says no one shall commit murder, robbery, fraud, rape, whatever, and it's backing it up by the threat of force, then the government can succeed in minimizing such things and in really securing freedom. But because the government is an agency that uses force, it itself is potentially a tremendous threat to freedom. Because what happens to the extent the government uses its force, not in defense or retaliation, but itself initiates the use of force, as many, many governments have done. And suppose the government says, uh, it shall be illegal to be Jewish or uh, illegal to be black or if you are uh, you suffer uh, various uh, severe disabilities well uh, in that case uh, the government itself is violating freedom now uh, the great genius of the uh, founding fathers of the United States is uh, they recognized uh, the nature of government and that it was potentially very, very hazardous to your health. You know, on all packs of cigarettes we have a warning, uh, smoking is hazardous to your health, and I'm sure it is. But uh, there is actually a greater hazard uh, than smoking and other such things, uh, too much sugar or chocolate or whatever, and that is uh, uncontrolled government. Because what can the government do if it's out of control? So you just think, uh, what is the armament of the worst criminal gang? Uh, how much arms uh, do the Bloods and the Crips have available? Or the Mafia? Or the uh, Purple Gang or whatever? Or Jesse James? They have uh, revolvers, they have some rifles, now they may have some submachine guns, uh, maybe they could get a few mortars. Uh, what's any modern government got? They have an army, tanks, artillery, uh, and many of them have uh, rockets with atomic and hydrogen bombs. Now, uh, who is the greater potential threat? Governments. And where would you rather have taken your chances uh, with the Capone mob or the Gestapo or, or uh, the Purple Gang or the KGB. Uh, governments are potentially uh, vastly, uh, are potentially uh, the greatest threat to freedom because they have uh, open lines of communication, uh, they have vastly greater concentrations of power and so uh, what the Founding Fathers and a line of political philosophers before them, above all John Locke, uh, what they recognized was that uh, in order to secure freedom, what you need is limited government. The government has to be controlled. It's a potential vicious beast that needs to be kept within a cage and shackled so that it cannot get out and run wild uh, doing damage. And to achieve that, uh, they constructed uh, the United States government based on a division of powers, a system of checks and balances. Uh, we have three distinct branches of government, each one supposedly watching the other two and limiting their powers. And we have a division uh, between the state and federal governments with distinct powers. 
and then we have a constitution and bill of rights. All of these are means of limiting and controlling the powers of the government so that uh, the government would be essentially limited to uh, uh, acting against common criminals, protecting the citizens from the initiation of force, and not itself initiating force. Now, if you had that, if we have a situation where the government, in effect, sits on the criminals, makes life miserable uh, for the citizens who initiate the use of force, who are defining themselves thereby as criminals, if the government can minimize them, and at the same time it does not initiate force because it's restrained by a constitution, bill of rights, division of powers, and all the rest of it, then you have a free country. Then the individual citizen does not have to worry about uh, being robbed, raped, murdered, or whatever. That's not a major concern of life. It's something off in the remote background. And he does not have to fear his own government. He does not have to uh, live in dread of getting an audit notice from the IRS, for example, or uh, of being told that uh, he's out of compliance with God knows what uh, regulatory, uh, what, what uh, regulations. Then uh, you have a free country. Yes? In your definition of the primary factor that keeps the infrastructure in place is fear of force. That's the primary factor that people stay in where, how do you factor morality and ideological codes? No, I didn't say that uh, the fear of force is the primary factor that makes uh, the system work or society run. I just said that uh, uh, freedom is the absence of the initiation of physical force. And uh, 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 moral convictions uh, certainly operate with, uh, with this. Uh, the, you need a society in which uh, most people are ready uh, to avoid, as far as they're aware, uh, initiating force and to, and to condemn uh, those who do. Now, if you had a society uh, where the dominant moral idea was that it's okay to initiate the use of force, uh, then there'd be nothing that could stop it. Excuse me? Isn't that the way what we're facing right now? Well, we are facing a situation in which very few people are aware of the distinction between the initiation of force and the use of force in defense or retaliation, uh, in which people uh, think there are no limits to government power uh, any time uh, many, many people want something. They think uh, it's perfectly fine to try to achieve it through passing some law uh, without realizing that in doing so uh, they can be forcing other people to act against their will. See, any time uh, you have a group that wants to get money from the government, and we have no shortage of such groups, well, uh, how will the government collect that money? Doesn't it always reduce to uh, some people want the government to threaten some of their fellow citizens with jail unless uh, they support that first group? And we have people who believe they're entitled to all kinds of things from the government, and they don't stop to ask the question, uh, who will pay for this, and what will make them pay for it? So uh, we do have uh, major problems uh, with people uh, with, with their moral, moral political ideas uh, being 
uh, incompatible with freedom. But uh, to the extent that we would have freedom, uh, then uh, uh, people are in a position to uh, set about achieving uh, their material self-interest. And uh, let me jump ahead uh, to point three here. Hopefully we'll come back and touch on point two. Uh, I refer it to capitalism, its nature and origin. Well, the basic thing is uh, private ownership of the means of production and characterized by the pursuit of material self-interest under freedom. Well, just think, if you have freedom, uh, as I've tried to explain it, uh, where what you're free of is the initiation of physical force. There's a government, there's a police force, there are courts with judges, uh, there are jails. But essentially the only things that are illegal are acts such as murder, robbery, rape, fraud. Acts entailing the initiation of physical force. And the government is effective in combating them. It doesn't have to catch every last criminal but it catches a very substantial number. Uh, they're put out of circulation. Uh, that serves as a deterrent to others who might be tempted to uh, go along the same path. So if the government does that uh, and succeeds, then the uh, average citizen doesn't have to be greatly concerned uh, with uh, being the victim of crime. The government is making him free of uh, depredations by criminals. And if at the same time the government is limited to that, that's all it's doing, then the citizen doesn't have to be afraid of the government either. Well, then what are you able to do if you don't have to worry about being the victim of physical force either by your neighbors or by the government? But you, you yourself, of course, are prohibited from uh, initiating force. And now here you are, you would like to pursue your material well-being. You want to make your life materially better. Well, what sorts of things will you have to do? What will uh, define the limits of your action and the character of your action? Yes? I mean what I read is basically your material freedom is if you want a car, if you don't have a car, you want a car. If you have one car, you go for two cars. All right. Or an airplane or a boat. Or okay. Increasing to your material wealth. Okay. And how would you obtain that? How are you attempting to obtain? You're interested in a higher standard of living, aren't you? Uh, how are you going about doing that? Yes. Selling, you're selling your skills to the highest bidder. Uh, you're selling mm -hmm. your skills to the highest bidder, and at the same time, you're attempting to augment your skills, right? Uh, presumably, that's why you're in an MBA program. You want to uh, augment your skills. Uh, you want to make yourself more marketable and earn a higher income by doing that. Now, uh, what about uh, the the companies that you're working for? Uh, how are they, uh, by and large, attempting to improve their profitability? Can you create return investment? 
how are they attempting to do that? They want the greatest return on investment. They'd like to have a greater return uh, than they do now, or they want to maintain the, if they have a good return, they want to maintain it in the face of competition. So uh, what sorts of things do they have to do? They have to improve their productivity. They have to come up with improved products or uh, lower cost methods of producing the products they are producing. Uh, they have to uh, anticipate uh, changes in consumer demand and uh, have uh, the things the consumers want uh, when they want them. So uh, they're attempting uh, to gear their activities. Uh, they're attempting to do things that will induce uh, customers voluntarily to buy from them on a larger scale or uh, to uh, cut their costs of production. Uh, they're attempting uh, to improve uh, to offer things in the market that uh, more people want or will be willing to pay higher prices for and at the same time uh, to uh, improve their efficiency, produce at lower costs. And to the extent they succeed in doing that, uh, they can earn a greater income. Well now, uh, to the extent they do that, what's the effect on, on the uh, people they're dealing with? We can see that to the extent you succeed, that's very good for you. But uh, if you're succeeding uh, by offering a better product in the market, what's the effect on the buyers of the product? Receiving product. They're receiving a better product. Uh, if you're uh, producing more efficiently at a lower cost, well, uh, ultimately, uh, what's going to be the effect on the price uh, that the buyers will pay? That will go down. Now you see, uh, you have to realize that uh, when uh, firms introduce improvements and they increase their own profits, uh, almost always they have competitors. And even if they didn't have any existing competitors, if uh, some lines of business become exceptionally profitable, as soon as others get wind of this, uh, they'll try to duplicate it. Uh, a recent example from all the commercials we see uh, first there's Viagra, uh, then there's, uh, what's the next one, Levitra, uh, then there's a third one, maybe a fourth one. So uh, what's the effect of that on the profits of Viagra when it gets uh, this pile of competitors? That goes down. Or uh, more importantly, here's Intel. Uh, they come out uh, years ago with an 8286 chip, and that's the hottest thing in the market, uh, circa 1984, 1985. But how long does the 8286 chip remain the hottest thing in the market? Not very long. Others are doing it. Uh, then what does Intel have to do? Uh, come out with the 8386. And uh, people are cutting their costs. Uh, back in the 19th century at some point, uh, I think uh, uh, Carnegie Steel uh, may have introduced the Bessemer process uh, in the United States steel industry. And that represented a significant cost-saving improvement. Well, uh, what happened uh, when uh, steel generally came to be produced by that more advanced method? Then the price of steel reflected the lower cost. And then uh, to make money through efficiency, you had to have greater efficiencies. So. Uh, anytime uh, anyone is introducing improvements, uh, his motive is to improve his own profits. 
but at the same time he has to offer better products to the buyers, uh, more efficient methods of production, uh, which will ultimately be passed on to the buyers. So what's the effect of that uh, profit-seeking uh, on the general standard of living? It's driving it forward. That's how the standard of living goes up. Just think of uh, why was practically anything that we take for granted invented and then improved in all the ways it was improved. That's the profit motive. Uh, the profit motive leads to uh, newer, better products and more efficient methods of producing whatever exists. And that's what's uh, continually raising the standard of living. Now, you see, uh, this is uh, the pursuit of self-interest under freedom. Uh, when you're attempting uh, to uh, earn more money, and uh, the one thing you're not allowed to do is initiate the use of force, and the only way you can then make more money is with the voluntary cooperation of the people you deal with, that means in order for you to make more money, you have to benefit the buyers of your products and you have to uh, produce them more efficiently. And you have to benefit uh, everyone who's dealing with you. Just think, if you cannot resort to force or fraud against people, how do you get them to deal with you? Pardon me? They have to make it a benefit to them. In order for you to benefit uh, in your dealings, uh, if, if you have to deal with people voluntarily, uh, you have to see to it that they benefit. And this is one of the uh, enormously important insights of Adam Smith back in the 18th century. He said, uh, the nature of every bargain is that uh, in order for uh, me to benefit, I have to see to it that you also benefit. Both parties uh, in a freely conducted bargain benefit. There's uh, a harmony of self-interest. Uh, this is one of the tremendous insights of Smith and the classical economists, that the self-interests of people could be harmonious. Now, that is only true uh, provided they cannot resort to physical force against one another, that they have to deal with one another on a voluntary basis. If people are to deal with one another voluntarily, it has to be on the basis of mutual benefit. And then you have uh, self-interest acting as this enormously powerful engine of progress. So it makes all the difference whether or not uh, you can resort to force. If you can't, if you cannot resort to force, if that's the one thing you can't do, but you do wish to promote your self-interest, you do want to serve your material self-interest, well, what do you have to do? You have to produce benefits. You have to produce better, more efficient products. Then you do serve your self-interest by doing that, but at the same time, what are you doing to the self-interest of those who deal with you? They're promoting it as well. Uh, this is what makes the profit motive the tremendous uh, engine of progress that it is. But it, it's a life and death difference whether or not you can 
promote your self-interest by force or are prohibited from doing that. See, we're talking, when we talk about the profit motive and capitalism in positive and glowing terms even, it's always on the understanding that uh, you are prohibited from using physical force. You're prohibited from initiating force. That means you have to promote your self-interest uh, by introducing improvements, by serving the self-interest of those you deal with at the same time. Now, if you remove this constraint on force, then all bets are off. And there are lots of people who try to promote their self-interest by using force. And what's a good classic illustration? Protection uh, the protection racket. The mafia can stand as a good uh, representation of uh, the attempt to promote self-interest by force. Uh, they sell protection. Uh, they have stick-ups. Uh, criminal activity in general. Uh, a bank robber wants to uh, uh, get a lot of loot, uh, but how does he do it? Uh, he goes and he robs the bank. Now, that's not promoting anybody's self-interest. Now, unfortunately, there's tremendous confusion. Uh, many, many people, when they think of self-interest, when they think of the profit motive, greed, whatever, uh, they're not making any distinction between the attempt to serve your self-interest in peaceful, voluntary trade or through force. Uh, they're not seeing the distinction. And they think that, uh, there really is no such distinction. And many, many people, unfortunately, hold uh, what you can describe as a mafioso view of self-interest. They think the way you serve self-interest is you go and rob banks, uh, have a protection racket, uh, engage in con games, whatever. That's their concept of self-interest. And any time they hear uh, people are pursuing their self-interest, uh, they want to make the greatest possible profits, well, they think uh, we're talking about mafioso. And I think uh, this mindset uh, explains a tremendous part of the hostility uh, to business and profits. People are thinking of business as uh, some kind of, of mafioso. Now, uh, things can be very, very confused. Uh, it's possible uh, for any given individual uh, at one time or another uh, uh, to act in an improper way. Uh, you might have someone uh, who for 99% of his career is pursuing his self-interest uh, strictly through voluntary trade, uh, mutual benefit, but there could be 1% uh, where he breaches that. And maybe that, nowadays, uh, maybe that's true uh, to some degree uh, of everybody. And what makes it particularly confusing is uh, the kinds of laws that uh, can be passed. Uh, suppose, for example, you have a uh, software company or computer company and uh, its regular normal operations are it's uh, uh, introducing better software or uh, more powerful computers or whatever. Uh, it's functioning uh, normally in a proper, highly productive way. But there might be some occasion that comes up. Uh, they decide to uh, make generous political contributions uh, to get some uh, law passed or some rider tacked onto a law. 
that will uh, prohibit other people from competing with them. Uh, let's take the American steel industry. Uh, I'm sure uh, almost all of the time, day in and day out, uh, the American steel industry is trying to make profit uh, by producing high quality steel, even better steel than they are producing, and to do it more efficiently than they are. But sometimes uh, they encounter uh, some competition that they feel they can't meet, like foreign steel, and then uh, they make generous political contributions and they'll get a special uh, tariff prohibition enacted against their foreign competitors. Well, what stops the foreign competitors uh, from selling in the face of the uh, added tariff burden? Well, what is it that compels them uh, to, uh, to pay the higher tariff? Suppose we have Nippon Steel, let's say, and it's uh, sending its steel over in freighters. Uh, what would happen if uh, the freighters dock and the customs agents are there and uh, uh, the people on the vessel say, oh, we're just unloading our steel, we're not paying uh, the higher tariff? Then they'd be forced, the Coast Guard would probably be out with a gunboat or whatever. Uh, they would have to pay, they don't have a choice. Uh, th they would be forced uh, to act in violation of the law. Uh, the law represents force. But now just think, is sending your goods uh, to some country, is that an act of force? Are you initiating force when you send your goods somewhere? No, but if you're stopped, uh, there's an initiation of force. The initiation is your, is your being stopped. Now, uh, we have uh, business firms. Normally, uh, they're engaged in pursuing profit uh, by perfectly proper, positive means. But uh, time and again, uh, they turn to the government uh, for such a thing as a tariff, a special subsidy, uh, maybe launching some legal action against a competitor. Uh, and when they do that, uh, then uh, they're pursuing their self-interest uh, along the lines of the people who are using brass knuckles. So uh, it becomes very, very mixed. Now, while it may be mixed in practice, while, it, while it's entirely possible that every single business in the country today uh, is uh, guilty of some kind of uh, attempt to benefit uh, from the initiation of force, uh, analytically, we can still make a very sharp, clear distinction. And we can say that uh, this kind of business activity is very positive and proper, uh, raising the standard of living of everyone. And then there are other activities uh, which are working the opposite way. And the, uh, <coughs> uh, and the ultimate application would be uh, to minimize or totally eliminate uh, the instances in which businesses uh, can be responsible or feel they need to be responsible for initiating force and instead uh, let them pursue their, their profit motive strictly by introducing better products, more efficient methods of production. Now, if to the extent that you have uh, the profit motive and pursuit of self-interest 
operating under freedom to the extent that the initiation of force is prohibited and minimized, well then you have this incredibly powerful positive engine of progress. And that's uh, essentially what we established uh, with the founding of the United States, at least for the white male population, uh, there was greater freedom than at any previous time in history. Now just project, uh, what would people do, uh, say starting back around 1790, a year after the Constitution was enacted, two years after? Here you are, uh, you're living uh, in, the, in New England or the Middle Atlantic states, uh, somewhere uh, more or less on the eastern seaboard, and you want to improve your material well-being. Well, what would be a good way for many people to do that at that time? Move west. Uh, lay claim uh, to land that is essentially just uninhabited. No one has made any fixed claims to it. It's uh, largely empty forest. And so they start clearing trees, pulling out stumps and roots, and establishing farms. They're, they're moving west, and they're establishing private property and land. They're appropriating land from nature. Uh, their pursuit of self-interest lay in the appropriation of land from nature. Now, if they're free, and if at the same time uh, they think long range, uh, they, and they, they recognize themselves as uh, effective causal agents, and some of this relates back uh, to point two, the philosophical foundations of capitalism and economic activity. If people perceive themselves as capable of achieving effects, long-term effects, and they're free, they don't have to worry about their neighbors confiscating their land, they don't have to worry about the government confiscating it, and they want to benefit themselves, and they think long-range, then they start doing things in the present that will improve their productivity uh, 10, 20, 30 years in the future. That's why uh, these farmers would clear the land, pull out the rocks, the stumps, uh, drain land, uh, irrigate it, uh, one thing and another. They're taking action in the present uh, to benefit themselves in a fairly distant future. And that is an important, uh, uh, simple form of saving and capital accumulation. They labor in the present to benefit in the future. And then that carries over. Uh, why uh, do people start saving in their 20s and 30s uh, to provide for themselves uh, in their 60s and 70s? Well, what are uh, the preconditions of doing that? Pardon me? You have to trust that uh, you can that you will own what you're saving, that it won't be seized from you, uh, that uh, it, you will not be robbed uh, by envious neighbors, and the government will not confiscate you. And if people uh, have that conviction, and at the same time uh, they do think long range, uh, their mentality, uh, the culture that they live in, uh, favors uh, long range thinking being aware of the future and the present, well, uh, then acting for your material self-interest means you save and invest. 
and that's a, a major precondition of economic progress and prosperity. Now, uh, we can threaten that uh, today. Uh, if anyone is saving, let's say, $1,000 in a given year, uh, if that $1,000 uh, is going into an investment that will pay uh, a certain number of dollars, suppose you're going to put up $1,000, uh, you're, you're saving $1,000 uh, uh, buying some type of bond or other fixed income security. Well, what do you think is going to be the buying power of $1,000 in 30 years? Almost certainly much less. The only question is, how much less? Well, uh, how does such a situation uh, affect the extent to which people will save and provide for the future, the extent to which they can uh, serve their self-interest by saving and providing for the future if the buying power of money uh, cannot be assumed? if all you can assume is that it will be less, but how much less? Well, to the extent we have a monetary system uh, where people cannot trust the buying power, how must that affect saving and serving your self-interest by means of saving? It has to undermine it. It's a, a very serious uh, impairment. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk and discussion uh, how low the rate of savings is. And I think a very, very major reason is that we have a monetary unit whose buying power you can't trust. And uh, if you're attempting to save in any form that will come back as a fixed number of dollars, well, you really have no idea uh, what that's going to be worth or how important that will be, how valuable it will be. Now, if we wanted people to be able to serve their self-interest by saving and providing for the future and doing so uh, in terms of uh, contractually fixed numbers of dollars, what would we have to do about the monetary unit? Well, we'd have to have a monetary unit whose uh, buying power would not perpetually shrink. We'd have to have a different kind of monetary unit than we now do. Now, uh, the monetary unit that we have today, uh, I assume you're all familiar with the idea that uh, the value of anything uh, depends on its scarcity or lack of scarcity, its scarcity or abundance. Uh, what limits uh, the supply of paper dollars? They can be printed or just manufactured by uh, entries on, on the books. Uh, someone can hit some computer keys and money can come into into being in immense quantities. Well, uh, what do you think the ability to create money without limit, what effect must that have on the prospective buying power of money? It, it undercuts it. It threatens it. Now, if you wanted to have a monetary unit that people could trust, you would have to have a monetary unit whose quantity could not be arbitrarily increased. You'd have to have a monetary unit that could be increased only with very considerable difficulty. That would be a monetary unit whose buying power could be trusted. Any notion of possible candidates? Gold. Gold uh, is the traditional monetary unit, and the uh, main reason 
for the advantages of gold is that governments uh, have never mastered the art of alchemy, and so they can't destroy the value of gold. But they can easily destroy the value of paper that they can create without limit. Well, uh, that's uh, a whole other major discussion. But notice uh, the, the main point is that uh, if people are left to pursue their self-interest uh, under the one fundamental constraint that they can't do so by means of initiating force, then there are all kinds of ways to pursue your self-interest that are positive and profoundly beneficial. Uh, introducing new and improved products, more efficient methods of production, and before that, uh, appropriating land and natural resources from nature, saving and providing for the future. In fact, uh, the totality of our economic development, I think, can be understood in terms of the principle of individuals pursuing their peaceful self-interest. That's what led to the settlement of the West. That's why people moved West, established farms. Uh, why did uh, merchants follow the farmers and open stores to supply them? That was profitable for them. That's how they served their self-interest. Why did other people uh, begin stagecoach lines, then barge lines, and later on railroads, and still later uh, open gas stations, uh, produce automobiles? Uh, why, have, why all of these improvements uh, in the means of transportation? What led people uh, to carry them out, to look for them and implement them? their desire uh, to serve their self-interest. That's the profit motive for them. Why did other people uh, uh, open, build factories and uh, invent the equipment that went into them and improve the equipment and the products they'd be producing? What motivated them? The profit motive, again. Uh, why did other people uh, who are born on farms decide that they'd be better off working in towns and cities and in the new factories that were being built? rather than staying on the farms. Well, that was their self-interest. Uh, what led uh, little insignificant towns to grow into major cities? How did that happen? Do you think there were uh, government bureaus that said, ah, here's uh, Fort Detroit, uh, has a couple of hundred people. Uh, we need to have a big city there. And so we'll round up the, the serfs and put them in Detroit. Uh, how do you think uh, all of the different cities grew? There was individuals, one at a time, making decisions. Uh, this was uh, the best place for me to be at the time. Uh, the, the reason for practically everything occurring was uh, the pursuit of material self-interest under freedom. And literally, uh, in the space of about 100 years, from 1776 to 1876, it led to uh, the development of uh, the North American continent. And of course, it's uh, gone on uh, ever since. And this is uh, the great, uh, powerful engine of uh, material self-interest. And I think uh, we can see it at work uh, very powerfully, uh, despite a lot of impediments and uh, a lot of... Uh, of wrong, wrongful type pursuit of self-interest uh, going on in China today. 
they were getting nowhere under the uh, Mao Zedong regime, but uh, they finally recognized that what they needed to do was unleash material self-interest, and uh, to a very, very substantial degree, by no means completely, uh, I'm sure with uh, more uh, negatives mixed in than we have here, uh, they've succeeded in uh, very, very substantial uh, economic development. But that's the secret, uh, turning people free to pursue their material self-interest. Now, as I say, uh, many, many people have great, great difficulty in distinguishing uh, between the pursuit of material self-interest by positive, productive means and brass knuckles. And uh, again and again, uh, they think there's no distinction. And that's uh, the most fateful error that, that could be made, I think, uh, in economics. Because if, if you believe that the way self-interest is achieved is through brass knuckles, well, uh, what happens uh, to the extent that people are out attempting to achieve their self-interest that way? In effect, through robbery. So it undermines the system. Now, just notice, anytime there's a robbery, whatever the robber gains, the victim must lose, right? Uh, there's no net gain, obviously. But now, if robbery becomes a common large-scale phenomenon, how does that affect what the potential victims produce? How much are people going to produce if they know the likelihood is that when they produced it, they'll be robbed? They won't produce it. So the consequence of robbery as a widespread social phenomenon is that it actually works against the general self-interest. Not only is it the case that what the robbers gain, the victims equivalently lose, but there is that much less to be robbed. Now, this is why uh, the feudal era was so miserably poor. Under feudalism, each uh, feudal principality was attempting to live by plundering its neighbors. Now, when everyone is attempting to live by plundering everybody else, how much is there to plunder? There's just not all that much to plunder. So that becomes a very stupid, self-defeating policy. No one can succeed in those conditions. And this is why uh, many uh, writers have said uh, that uh, such a thing is really not self-interest. It's not rational self-interest. It's irrational, contradictory, self-defeating self-interest. It really shouldn't even be thought of as self-interest. The notion that uh, you serve your self-interest through robbery and plunder uh, when uh, generalized is entirely self-defeating. And uh, it's self-defeating in another respect, too. Uh, suppose we have people who believe that the way they can serve their self-interest, if they could get away with it, is uh, through robbery. They believe that that's how they could serve their self-interest if they could get away with it. Now, that becomes the general attitude in a society that uh, the way self-interest can be achieved is through robbery, uh, even if each individual thinks, well, it's okay for me to steal if I can get away with it. I won't tell anyone that I think that, but uh, if I can get away with it, that'll be good for me. 
what attitude would you expect to exist uh, toward the pursuit of self-interest by anybody else? Suppose you believe, suppose we have someone who believes that the way you serve your self-interest is through robbery. And you reserve the right to rob to yourself. You say, I'll rob because uh, that's to my self-interest. I won't announce that. And what I'll tell the world is, uh, I would never dream of serving my self-interest. I'm a doormat for the rest of mankind to walk on. I wish to serve everybody. Uh, that's my goal. But secretly, I reserve the right to uh, commit robbery. If people believe that, uh, what will be their attitude toward the pursuit of self-interest by everybody else? Well, if you think that self-interest means uh, you, you rob to serve it, even if you reserve it to yourself, do you want anyone else to do it? No. no. Imagine we have a society, all of the members of which believe the way you serve your self-interest is through robbery. What do you think will be the extent to which self-interest can be openly, publicly pursued? It will be impossible. Everyone will be saying, I don't want anyone to pursue their self-interest because that's robbery. You'll be killing me. But at the same time, they can believe that that's how they serve their self-interest. Just imagine you have a society uh, comprised mainly of people who think the way you serve your self-interest is through robbing other people. Now, if they're not psychotic, are they going to uh, announce that attitude? Is someone going to say, I think the way I would benefit if I wanted to benefit is by robbing all of you. How often will you find someone who will say, who'll get up openly and say, uh, I think I'll benefit if I can rob all of you? What would be the, the attitude they project in public? If they think self-interest means robbery, are they going to uh, present themselves as pro-self-interest? No, because if they're equating self-interest with robbery, uh, you don't want to announce that you're a robber or uh, could easily be one. So the public attitude towards self-interest will be entirely negative. But what about the private secret attitude? What happens in those moments when you may decide, yeah, I'd like to serve my self-interest? If you think that, that self-interest means robbery, that you have, the only way you can serve your self-interest is by robbing others, well, what will happen in those moments when you think of serving your self-interest or decide that you really wish to serve your self-interest? You'll be a robber. You'll be a robber. Now, don't we observe the phenomenon of politicians whose public career is one of selfless service to the good of mankind, and yet they may have a multi-million dollar Swiss bank account how do you explain that? Why should such a seeming contradiction not be such a surprise? Because they've had the attitude all along, self-interest and robbery are equivalent. That self-interest, that one man's gain is another man's loss. And that's what they believed. But they don't want to appear in public as saying, I'm an enemy <coughs> of the human race, because they wouldn't get very far. But if they believe that the way you serve your self-interest is through robbery, then what's going to happen if and when they ever decide to serve their self-interest? They'll be robbers. We shouldn't be so surprised. That's what they thought all along. 
only up till now they've never said they would serve their self-interest. They've always said they want to be a doormat for the rest of the human race. They're selflessly sacrificing themselves for the good of mankind. But their idea all along is that self-interest is robbery. Well, any time you find someone with a, a negative, consistently negative view of self-interest, you should stop and ask yourself, what would ever happen if this person should decide to act on his self-interest? He keeps saying he never would, he never does, wouldn't think of it. But anyone who thinks that self-interest, anyone who buys the idea that one man's gain is another man's loss, what is implied if he should ever decide to act for his own gain? Pardon me? Yeah, watch out, because he thinks that the way he needs to serve his self-interest is by uh, committing something against other people. Now, uh, in a society that, can, that thinks of self-interest as evil, uh, what you will have is the uh, private, secret, dark pursuit of self-interest uh, by means of force, uh, robbery, and at the same time, the total public condemnation of it. And there'll be virtually uh, little or no open pursuit of self-interest. A society that turns against self-interest in public is a society of secret thieves all uh, talking about their uh, morality and dedication to self-sacrifice, but they believe that the way you pursue self-interest is through theft, and uh, again and again, uh, there'll be people who act that way. Now, uh, it was uh, uh, perhaps only in the 17th and 18th century uh, that uh, philosophers began to realize that uh, there is a very different, radically different positive dimension of self-interest, self-interest as a benevolent force, but that means self-interest under freedom. And that's how the philosophers of the Enlightenment understood self-interest. That's how people like uh, Adam Smith understood self-interest. That's how uh, the great tradition of economists understands self-interest. Self-interest uh, with force and fraud off the table. Then uh, there is room for self-interest, but it's by positive, productive means. And that's what uh, generated the wealth of the world. Yes? Okay. Um, on that thought, like Adam Smith in particular, I remember reading him when I graduated, and he spent a particular amount of time talking about how he described motivation as the golden hand Capitalism. Invisible hand. The invisible hand of capitalism, yeah. which I remember this very clearly because it was a great point because of your book on secularism. Yeah. The interpretation that we discussed very heavily was that invisible hand was actually a Protestant definition of God. Okay. So you're asking, how does this relate to uh, secularism? Yeah. Okay. Adam Smith uh, said. Uh, in talking about the benevolent outcome of self-interest. He had a statement, um, again and again, individuals, by pursuing their self-interest, um, serve the public good, even though that was no part of their intention. And they serve it better uh, than those who openly avow uh, the public good as being their goal. 
And he said, it's as though they were led uh, by an invisible hand. Now that's purely metaphorical. Adam Smith did not really mean that uh, God is sitting up there looking down at the economic system and uh, making things work out this way. Uh, that's purely a metaphor. Uh, things work out this way uh, by virtue of the inner logical necessity of the situation. See, look, uh, here we are. Uh, Intel wants to raise its profits. If they can't go and point a gun at the heads of chip buyers, how do they get chip buyers to buy more of their chips or pay a premium price for them? They must offer a better chip, right? Now, is it that it's just arbitrary that they offer a better chip, that God makes them offer a better chip? Or are they offering a better chip because that is the logically necessary thing you have to do uh, to get people voluntarily to part with their chip dollars? Well, I didn't mean a literal translation of it, yeah. but I, I see underneath all of this ethic. Yeah. I, I see it as a, as a very Protestant ethic, a belief in a, a certain moral code that underlies everything. Well, there is, there is a, a moral code, and it may well be the case that uh, there's a large overlap uh, between this moral code and the convictions of various Protestant denominations. Uh, I, I'm not an authority on that, but uh, I'm quite willing to believe that. Uh, but I would say that uh, it's probably more likely the case that uh, the change in philosophy that occurred uh, had a spillover influence on uh, on theology. And uh, you can find this phenomenon going on in other parts of the world today. Uh, a couple of decades ago, I, I spent a, a few days in Singapore, and I was uh, browsing through a bookstore there, and uh, they were making a conscious effort to reinterpret Buddhism in a way to make it consistent with life in the modern world. And so uh, I would imagine uh, you might find Buddhist philosophers uh, coming out with a reinterpretation of, of the traditional teachings of Buddhism uh, to make it uh, consistent with what you need to do to live in the modern world. Uh, you have people uh, doing the same thing here. Uh, there are people uh, like Michael Novak, uh, who's a, a philosopher, a Catholic philosopher, uh, who tries to convert uh, Catholic theologians uh, to be less opposed to free enterprise, to uh, reinterpret uh, different things in the Bible and uh, Catholic theology. Uh, so I don't think uh, it's a given uh, in the religion. Uh, there's all kinds of historical influences that have worked in different ways in different religions, and I think they uh, they move uh, with uh, philosophical currents. I just always saw capitalism and the economic derivation of one part. Well, I don't know uh, the details of what uh, Luther was doing, but I would say that uh, uh, capitalism indirectly derives uh, very heavily uh, from what St. Thomas Aquinas uh, did. And he, of course, uh, uh, is perhaps the, the uh, greatest of the Catholic theologians. Uh, Thomas Aquinas was responsible for uh, reintroducing the writings of Aristotle into the Western world. And so let me, this is what I discussed under point two, uh, the philosophical foundations of capitalism and economic activity, uh, starting with uh, secularism. If you're going to have any kind of 
uh, serious economic development, it's necessary that people believe that the material world in which they live has full reality, that it's not uh, some kind of shadow existence. I would just think, suppose people took very, very seriously the conviction that uh, our life in this world is simply a period of testing for an infinite afterlife. And the, the really important thing is the infinite afterlife and what goes on uh, in your 70 years or whatever of life in this world, that's really very secondary. Well, to what extent would you be able to concentrate on improving your life in this world? I don't think you could give it uh, your full heart and mind, at the least. So that's one issue. Uh, Aristotle argued that uh, the material world that we perceive through our senses, that this world is fully real, uh, and we can trust its existence. A closely related acceptance of the principle of causality. Now suppose you believed that uh, everything uh, proceeds as a miracle. Uh, God is deciding from moment to moment uh, what event will happen uh, following whatever other event. Do you think it would be possible to have science in that environment? So you just think for a moment. Uh, a scientist is attempting to find the answer, to explain something. He almost never will find it on the first attempt. What is it that keeps the scientist working uh, attempt after attempt after attempt to find the answer to a question? What philosophical presuppositions <coughs> must be present in order for the activity of science to proceed? That there is a law, that nature has regularity, that nature operates according to cause and effect, and that our minds are capable of grasping such principles. You have to believe that the human brain has the ability to understand regularities that exist out there in nature. Now, if we thought there are no regularities, or if there are, we can't figure out what they are, then could we have science? No. And if we couldn't have science, could we have technology? No. Well, in order to have science and technology, it's necessary to have uh, these philosophical uh, presuppositions that nature operates according to definite regularities and that our minds are capable of grasping them. Well, Aristotle uh, taught both things and Thomas Aquinas, in reintroducing Aristotle, uh, brought those attitudes uh, back into the Western world. Then also, uh, the acceptance of causality underlies uh, economic activity in other important ways, too, uh, such things as uh, the willingness to work hard, uh, the willingness to save and provide for the future. In order for people to work hard, and save and provide for the future, they have to have a certain view of themselves in relation to the world. They have to view themselves as uh, causal agents capable of achieving uh, results that they want to achieve. Now suppose you thought of yourself as utterly helpless, a ship uh, floating uh, on the waves, uh, and you're bounced back and forth by currents beyond your control. What could you attempt to accomplish? Nothing. Well, in order for people uh, to uh, do such things as work hard, attempt to solve problems, uh, save and provide for the future, 
they have to view themselves as effective causal agents. And that's a philosophical attitude. Uh, uh, further, point C, uh, acceptance of the power of reason. Uh, consequent view of man and the individual as valuable and competent. Now, uh, just think, uh, what is it that distinguishes us from all of the other animal species? The fact that we possess reason. That's why we say we're higher uh, than the dolphins and tuna fish and even cats and dogs. Now, uh, suppose uh, we did not uh, attach much significance to reason. Suppose, and there have been philosophers in history who have said uh, reason is a trap and a snare. It makes things look logical, but in the last analysis, it's all chaos. So suppose uh, we didn't attach uh, any significant positive valuation to reason. What would that imply about our valuation uh, of the status of human beings compared to other species? we wouldn't see much difference. And I think that's actually happened. Uh, you find today uh, a, a, a widespread uh, attitude. Uh, well, there are uh, blacks and Caucasians and giraffes and snail daughters, and we're all part of the biotic family. Uh, they're not seeing anything that unites human beings oh. and elevates them above uh, all other species. The whole animal rights movement, I think, uh, is, is founded on the idea that uh, reason doesn't represent a profound difference, the presence or absence of reason. Now, if we have a positive uh, view of reason, if we regard reason as reliable, as uh, the means, uh, the, a reliable uh, certain means of knowledge, and Aristotle taught uh, that reason provides knowledge with certitude, that's what Aquinas taught, and that we have the capacity to exercise it, well, that implies an elevated view of human beings, that human beings are regarded as above uh, the lesser species. Now, if further we regard reason as the possession of the individual human being, not the possession of the human race in the abstract, but the possession of each and every individual human being, what kind of attitude does that imply towards a human individual. We'll have a positive, respectful attitude because reason means, if reason is reliable, it means, uh, and valuable, it means that the individual human being is valuable and competent. He's able, uh, he's uh, above any other species by virtue of his possession of reason, and he's competent to live by virtue of his possession of reason. So we have a positive attitude, and this is just one step removed from the recognition of individual rights. The concept of individual rights arose, uh, became uh, powerful in the 18th century, the age of reason. It was a corollary of uh, the recognition of the value and power of reason and that the individual possessed it. And that's what underlay uh, such things as uh, our Bill of Rights. And also, uh, it's what underlies such things as uh, uh, great entrepreneurship, uh, great efforts of any kind by individuals. So, uh, what is it that would enable someone 
to set out uh, to discover a new world or to revolutionize an industry. What kind of view of human potential is implied? That human beings can succeed on a grand scale. In order for someone like Columbus to set sail or uh, for someone uh, to revolutionize the, uh, the means of production uh, in any field, uh, you have to have a pretty elevated view of what it is possible for a human being to accomplish. Suppose instead your attitude was uh, you don't know if you can even get your next fix. That's uh, the maximum limit of what you're capable of. Well, how much uh, will such people uh, be led to attempt to achieve? Very, very little. Well, uh, everything in the last analysis comes down to uh, the cultural status of reason. It underlies science and technology. Uh, you have to know there are laws of nature that we can discover. It underlies our view of man, uh, our recognition of individual rights, and uh, it limits uh, the degree of, of the undertakings we attempt to uh, carry out. So it's an essential foundation of all aspects of economic development. And uh, so many of our problems, I think, uh, derive from uh, growing philosophical distrust of the power of reason. Now, uh, in the last uh, few minutes, let me turn to uh, the very controversial character of economics and capitalism. Uh, I have a discussion uh, in capitalism let me see if I can uh, bring it up on screen. Now this is on the profit motive, uh, but everything else in capitalism is attacked too. Uh, money is uh, commonly condemned as the root of all evil. Competition is the law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, dog eat dog. Uh, economic inequality is thought of as the basis for class warfare. Uh, there is virtually no aspect of capitalism uh, that does not come in uh, for tremendous uh, attack. And I'd like to uh, try uh, briefly uh, to indicate uh, the reasons. Uh, uh, economics encounters a, a lot of difficulty. Uh, at one level, and this is... Uh, Point B, economics versus unscientific personal observations. Uh, this is something that exists in other sciences too. For example, uh, in physics, uh, there are such phenomena as if you put a stick in water, the stick looks bent. It isn't bent, but it looks bent. If you're uh, looking up at the sky uh, morning to evening, uh, it appears that the sun goes around the earth. It rises in the east and sets in the west. Now, uh, uh, physics and astronomy uh, know that uh, the stick in the water is not bent. It's, uh, the appearance is explained by the way uh, light is refracted in water. And uh, the appearance of the uh, movement of the sun around the earth is explained by the rotation of the earth. Okay, now, uh, these are instances where uh, there is uh, uh, some level of conflict between superficial unscientific observation 
and the uh, teachings of serious science. And there's a comparable level of, uh, of uh, difficulty in economics. For example, it may appear that machinery causes unemployment or that war causes prosperity. I would say these are uh, phenomena of uh, comparable uh, false appearance uh, as the uh, stick in the water, a stick being bent in the water, and the uh, sun revolving around the earth. Uh, they can be explained uh, without too great difficulty. Uh, machinery does not cause unemployment. It changes the pattern of employment. Uh, war does not promote prosperity. Uh, just changes the pattern of activity. So that's one level of difficulty. Now, uh, in the history of physics and astronomy, uh, they also encountered a, a further level. Uh, when uh, Galileo uh, was explaining that the uh, Earth actually revolves around the Sun rather than the Sun around the Earth, uh, there was a further element beyond uh, naive observation, and that was uh, that Galileo's teaching was perceived as an attack on the whole foundation of theology. Because it was thought God has made uh, man the center, man is his highest creation, uh, the earth his home, uh, is therefore the center of the universe, and so the sun must revolve around the earth, not the earth around the sun. So when Galileo argued that uh, the earth is revolving around the sun, that was being perceived as an attack on the foundations of received morality. And that made his uh, job much more difficult. He was uh, threatened uh, uh, with torture by the Inquisition. Now, there's something similar uh, in economics. Uh, economics uh, has a very different view of self-interest than we have received uh, from traditional morality. What is the view of self-interest that we obtain from traditional morality? that it's greed, that it's at, at best it's amoral, uh, more likely it's immoral. There's a very negative view of self-interest and the uh, positive virtue uh, from traditional morality is supposed to be self-sacrifice. Self-interest is thought to be evil, self-sacrifice good. But if you study economics and you see uh, how markets work and how the economy uh, prospers and functions, you cannot help but arrive at a radically different view of self-interest. Of course, you have to uh, be aware that we're talking about self-interest under freedom, meaning you cannot obtain, you cannot strive uh, to serve your self-interest through the initiation of force. That's out. Uh, we're only talking about the pursuit of self-interest by peaceful, voluntary means. That can't be stressed too strongly. But if you do make that distinction and you're looking at self-interest under freedom, then you have a view of self-interest that is very, very much at odds with uh, traditional morality. And that perception, I think, has created the greatest difficulties for economics, comparable uh, to Galileo uh, and the Inquisition. It's uh, perceived as more than an issue of the uh, particular science it's perceived as something with enormous, uh, wider uh, moral uh, theological implications. 
But then economics has an even greater difficulty, one uh, which was never experienced uh, by astronomy or physics, and that is uh, it, its problems are compounded uh, by, by what I refer to in point D as uh, economics versus irrational self-interest. Namely, there are many, many people who believe that uh, the way to pursue their self-interest is, in fact, by uh, committing robbery and fraud. They think that's how you serve your self-interest. Now, to the extent there are such people, what is the effect on the perception of self-interest? It reinforces the negative perception. Uh, to the extent that there are people who believe they can achieve their self-interest through force and they attempt to do so, uh, that feeds the, uh, the uh, assumption that self-interest is evil they appear to be providing fresh evidence for it. It's as though uh, when Galileo presented his ideas, not only would there be uh, this uh, theological opposition that it's undermining uh, the foundations of theology, but imagine that there had been groups of people in Galileo's time who had some kind of positive vested interest in the, uh, in the sun revolving around the earth, in the idea that the sun revolves around the earth. Well, uh, we have something comparable uh, in the economic world. Uh, there are people who positively believe that their self-interest is served uh, by uh, the use of force or fraud. And to the extent uh, that there are such people, uh, they confirm or appear to confirm the idea that uh, self-interest is evil and self-sacrifice is the only thing moral. So uh, it is really vital uh, to recognize uh, what kind of self-interest we're talking about. And then finally, uh, there's this last point, economics versus irrationalism. Uh, in order uh, to establish its propositions, uh, economics depends on chains of reasoning. Uh, people have to be willing uh, to start with premises and follow their logical uh, in implications. But what happens if people don't trust the process of logic? Suppose they have the attitude, oh, you can prove anything. And what does that mean about your ability to prove anything? And what does it mean about people's willingness to follow chains of thought? Well, to the extent there are such attitudes, that's an added difficulty. Okay, well, let me pause here and uh, see what uh, reaction, if any, uh, I'm getting. Have I misstated anything of significance? You're not saying greed is good. not that important gecko. Pardon me? <laughs> well, you're saying self-interest is good. Self-interest is good. But it would depend on what you mean by greed. If you yeah. want to, uh, if, if by greed one means uh, one wants to serve one's self-interest uh, to the utmost extent, then I would accept the proposition: greed is good. But uh, that's not accepting uh, the, the character of uh, Gord Gecko. 
you see, it's all it's all an issue. Uh, if uh, you're talking about self-interest uh, through peaceful, voluntary exchange to mutual benefit, well, isn't more of it better than less? Now, the only problem is if uh, people start mixing in uh, the pursuit of self-interest uh, by the initiation of force. Uh, then that is wrong in any quantity. Okay, any uh, further questions or comments? All right, well then I hope to see you all two weeks from tonight and please, please uh, send me an email with a reliable return email address. Include your home and office phone numbers and the way you want your name to appear on a nameplate. So, see you all in two weeks. Thanks, Professor. You're very well. Have a good night. <laughs> <laughs> See you later.